Jesus coming the first time 2,000 years ago. But also part of what these Advent readings do is they look forward to the coming of Christ again. And so sometimes as you go through these Advent readings, you'll read through them and you're like, that's not baby Jesus. You know, that's not shepherds. Those aren't wise men. It's talking sometimes about the coming of Christ. And so part of what we're doing here at Seven Hills Fellowship is we um, really kind of go through this Advent series is we are looking backwards at the story of Christ. In fact, we're looking at Luke, the book of Luke, and uh, the record that he um, researched and gives us there in his gospel. But again, we're also looking forward in expectation to Christ coming again. Now, last week we looked in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, where Gabriel comes to Mary with this pretty amazing announcement, and then she responds. I'm going to read that one more time just to sort of give us context as we move into uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. So beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said, and then the angel left her. At this point in time, Mary then went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Now, before I jump in and read verses 46 through 55, um, let me just sort of set the stage there for a minute and think about just what this announcement would have done to this 14-year-old girl. It would have absolutely shocked her, right? It would have changed her world. But at the same time, uh, it would have given her this understanding of exactly what God was bestowing upon her, that the Messiah, the one that was coming to rescue her and the nation of Israel, was going to come through her, a 14-year-old girl living there in Nazareth. Let's look, beginning at verse 46. She writes a song essentially to celebrate what God has done uh, to her and through her, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for the words of Scripture. I thank you for the work that Luke did in recording um, the story of Gabriel's announcement um, to Mary and to Mary's trip to Elizabeth in this song. 
And Father, I pray today that as we look at this, um, this song that Mary wrote, um, that we also would be able to join with her in exalting and magnifying your name because of your mercy, uh, because of your care for us, because of your salvation, and because of your might. So Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we have an opening illustration today that I'm going to just kind of direct your attention toward the screen. Um, but you'll notice that the first uh, line of verse 46 was, my soul magnifies the Lord. That word is megalune. It means to make great. And so we're going to have a, a little brief movie clip here of someone who uh, made someone else's name great. So I'll go ahead and get you to take a look. Are you mad at me? No. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Just do your job. Okay. Oh, wow. What's this? This is the North Pole. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where's the snow? Why are you smiling like that? I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Make work your favorite. That's your favorite, okay? Okay. Work is your new favorite. Fine. It's time for the announcement. Okay. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my... Santa here? I know him. I know him. He'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. Can you sign this for me? Oh, hi. Santa's coming. <laughs> all right. So I don't, I don't know. I've watched that clip way too many times now. Um, but in the background, when he goes, Santa, and he screams, he makes Santa's name great. Uh, there are people in the background who are laughing. It's hilarious. I'm sure that that was, uh, they just decided not to cut it, but they're just laughing at Will Ferrell as he goes crazy. Anyway, point is, <clears throat> that little uh, clip is a great example of him magnifying the name of Santa in that case. Here in uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, we have an example of Mary magnifying the name of the Lord. Again, that word megalune in Greek, such a good word, and it means to exalt, to magnify, to make great. Now, I have no idea where you are this morning um, emotionally, right, uh, in the midst of the Christmas season. I, I don't know about um, your homes, um, but in my home, a lot of times when the Christmas music starts playing at the end of October, we kind of go, really? You know, because it, what it feels like is it just almost feels manipulative, you know, like people are just trying to get you to spend money. And so part of what you can be feeling right now is a little bit like manipulated, you know, or you could be feeling a little bit apathetic. You could be like, you know, the music's been playing now for a month and I want to be excited about Christmas, but the truth is I just kind of am burned out on it. Or it could be that this Christmas season that you uh, find yourself depressed, you know, a lot of times what uh, Christmas and the holidays remind us of is people that we've, we've lost. So I, I don't know where you are today, but part of what I think I want to talk about this morning is that as we take a look at Advent and as we hear the story of the incarnation of God entering into humanity in order to rescue us in the form of a baby, that we should be able to join with Mary in exalting the name of the Lord, right? That's part of what we see in this song that she writes. Let's look at a couple of different things here. One, part of what we see in this is that, that we should join with Mary in exalting God because he cares for us in the same way that he cares for her. Listen to verse 48. Here's what she says. 
She says, for he, that is God, has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That word epiblepo is the word that's translated looked upon. And it's the same word that's used later on in Luke chapter 9, where there's a father who has a demon-possessed son, and he calls out to Jesus and he says, look upon my son, care for my son, because this, this demon is tearing him to pieces. Please look upon my son, care for him, save him. Right? It's the same idea when Jesus, when God appears to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. The Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt now for almost 400 years, and it's probably likely that Moses kind of thinks, you know what, God has checked out. He's left us. He doesn't care about us anymore. He's forsaken us. And yet God appears to Moses in the wilderness, and listen to what it is that God says. In verse 7 of Exodus chapter 3, it says this, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. In other words, like Mary, he says, I've been watching. I've been looking over you. He goes on to say, I've heard them crying out. In other words, not only have I been watching, but I've been listening because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. In other words, I've seen what's going on, I'm listening to their cries, and I care, right? I care about what's happening. Verse 8, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Again, I'm listening, right? He listens to us. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In other words, what God is communicating to Moses is, especially when you think I'm not caring, especially when you think I'm not paying attention, especially when you think I'm not seeing, you need to be reminded that I care about you, that I love you. That's, that's part of the message of this incarnation of God becoming a baby and entering into humanity, right? It's so easy for us to think that God doesn't really care about our sufferings. We think that he doesn't care about our children or about our marriage or about our work situation, and yet part of what happened when Jesus entered into humanity, the message of that incarnation was that he absolutely cares. It's why John, in John chapter 1, says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? God didn't have to enter in, but he chose to enter in, not only to redeem us and to rescue us, but to experience what we experience, to suffer in the same ways that we suffer. And today, because of this incarnation, we can join with Mary in exalting God because we are reminded that in the same way that he cared for the Israelites and in the same way that he cared for a 14-year-old girl, he cares for you and he cares for me. That's part of the message of the incarnation, and we can join with, with Mary in exalting God because of that. The second thing we see in this, this song of Mary is we can see that we should join with her in exalting God, not only because he cares, but also because he's merciful towards us. Look at verses 50 and 54. They say this, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And so the background is that for 400 years, God has been silent, right? And so it would be natural for Mary, and it would be natural for Joseph, it would be natural for the Israelites to think that God has checked out, that he's turned his back on them because of their unfaithfulness. And the truth is they have been unfaithful. The kingdom of Israel, which had been established under Joshua and ruled over by David and Solomon and various other kings, had splintered by this point in time and had been overrun by nations. But the reason it had splintered and been overrun was because of 
the unfaithfulness and the idolatry of the children of Israel. And yet what strikes Mary here is that God has not forgotten or given up on his people. He could have been done with the Israelites, but what she focuses in on is the fact that in this message to her from Gabriel and in this incarnation of Christ within her is that God is communicating that he is merciful, right? That he does not give us what we deserve. Rather, he gives us what we don't deserve, in this case, grace and salvation, right? Um, An example of being shown mercy occurred to me this morning. I woke up at 5.15 or something and hopped in the shower and got ready to go and uh, threw everything in my bag. I do this every Sunday morning, and I headed to Starbucks, and I hole up at Starbucks, and I read over my sermon over and over and over again. And uh, usually if I'm doing well, I'll cut points out of it so that it's shorter for you guys as opposed to longer. I rarely add anything to it. And uh, so hopped in the truck. It took me forever to get the ice off the windshield. Finally got on the road, heading to Starbucks. And I got there at probably, I don't know, 6.07 or something. And I got there and the lights were off. I was like, oh, are you kidding me? And so I was like, well, I'll turn around and head back home. And on my way back home, I saw Steak and Shake and thought, well, I'll just hold up at Steak and Shake because the lights were on in Steak and Shake. I don't know that it ever closes. Anyway, pulled into Steak and Shake, had a seat. You know, the young fellow brought me a menu, and I ordered something off the menu, and he began to bring me this, um, the food. And uh, I tried to get it on my computer, and I realized I didn't have any wireless. And so I thought, well, I'll use my phone as a, a wireless hotspot. And I reached in my bag, and I couldn't find my phone. So here I was with food from Steak and Shake in front of, front of me and no phone or wallet to pay for it. And so sheepishly, uh, I had to text Krista and say, hey, Krista, is there any way you could bring me my phone and my wallet over at uh, Steak and Shake? And uh, so very kindly and very mercifully, I got a text back a few minutes later saying, I'm on my way. And I don't know about you guys, I've told you this before, but I'm a bit of a self-loather. And so I have a tendency to beat myself up when I fail. And, uh, and so uh, as Krista was on her way and as she pulled up, I was sort of running through my mind about all these ways that Krista could respond. She could be mad at me. She could be disappointed in me. She could think, oh, you're such an idiot. But rather, she just pulled up, and with a big smile on her face, she handed me my wallet and phone, which are in the same thing. And, uh, and I just said, thanks so much for bringing it. She's like, no problem. Just, just mercy, right? She could have beaten me down. Like, she could have said, you made me get out of the house at 6.15 in the morning. But instead, she said, I was happy to do it, right? That's an example of mercy. It's part of what God is communicating, again, in the incarnation. It's part of what Mary is realizing here. She's realizing that God is a God who is to be exalted precisely because he does not give us what we deserve. What we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is to be separated from him. And what he gives us instead is salvation, right? He gives us his son. It's the same throughout the message of scripture, right? We see Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. What does he do? He's merciful. We see Jesus with Zacchaeus, this guy who has turned his back on his own people to be a chief tax collector. What does Jesus do? Shows him mercy. Levi, the Roman centurion, Mary Magdalene, over and over and over again, what Jesus does is he shows us mercy. That's the message of the gospel. The good news today is that this incarnation communicates that you don't get what you deserve, right? You get what Christ got for you on the cross through his perfect life death, and resurrection. And because of that, we can join with Mary in exalting God. We can exalt God because he cares for us, right? Because he's merciful to us. And then the third point, we can join with Mary in exalting God because he is our savior. That's what she draws out in verses 46 and 47. It says this, and Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, it's always interesting to ask these questions like, what did, what did Mary understand here? Did she really understand what she was saying, that, that, that God was her Savior? Probably not exactly, right? We know that because later on when Jesus was an adult and uh, he began acting in ways that didn't fit with what she assumed a Messiah or a Savior might look like, um, she actually thought he was going crazy, right? She didn't know what he was doing. And so she probably didn't understand what was going on. She probably assumed, like the other Jews, that he was going to be somebody who sort of kicked the Romans out and restored the kingdom of Israel. But she rejoiced either way in knowing that her deliverance was near. And so what is it that Jesus saves us from? Well, clearly part of what Jefferson talked about this morning is that we're saved from our sin, right? That's one of the the key messages of the gospel. And when many of us first became Christians, when we experienced salvation, we were filled with joy and praised God because we knew that our record didn't uh, measure up with what God's standard was for our righteousness, and yet we experienced salvation from our sin. Not only that, but, but we heard the message of, of the gospel, and part of what we also heard is that God came to save us from death. In other words, that Christ died in our place. He took the punishment that was rightfully ours so that we wouldn't have to die the death that he died, right? And so that's part of what else we're saved from, not only sin, but death. We're even saved from meaningless, right? One of the things that we understand is that apart from God, if there's no transcendent reality, then life is meaningless, right? There's no meaning in life. And yet in the incarnation of Jesus, we're saved from sin, we're saved from death, and we're even saved from meaninglessness. And because of that, we can join with Mary in exalting God. Last thing we see in this, uh, this song that Mary writes called the Magnificat, is that we can join with her in exalting God because he's mighty, right? Let's listen to verses 51 and 52. He has shown strength. The Greek word is kratos, which is just a good, strong-sounding word. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, for Mary, this reference to God's strength not only has to do with the miracle of her becoming pregnant outside the bounds of nature, but it's probably also her uh, understanding and hearkening back to God's might in the creation of the world, right? In the flood, in the miracles of the Exodus, in the exploits of David, and on and on and on. In other words, the message of all of those miracles, the message of God's might is that he is in charge, right? You don't have to worry because he's in charge. He's the Lord of history. We're worried about the economy, but we need to be reminded that God is mighty. He's in charge. We're worried about the future of America, but we need to be reminded that God is in charge, right? Cancer, aging parents, God's in charge. Islam, pluralism, abortion, Trump, Obama, Hillary, Europe, Syria, gas prices, the budget super committee, gluten-free food, high fructose corn syrup, global warming, China, USG, uh, UGA's game coming up in a couple weeks, right? The message for us, for all of us who have anxiety, who worry, who are fearful, is that God is mighty, right? That he is in charge. He's the Lord of history. And the beauty of Romans chapter 8 is that it tells us that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And Mary exalts God because he is mighty, he is strong, and we can join with her in exalting God 
as well. And so very quickly, let me just ask this. What happens when we magnify the Lord? What, what happens when we make his name great? I think there are a couple things. One thing I think happens is that when we magnify the name of the Lord, when we exalt him, we become smaller, right? He becomes bigger, we become smaller. Maybe another way of saying that is that our troubles become smaller, right? Or the worries of life become smaller as they're compared with his greatness and his magnitude. We were watching a show the other day on Netflix that was um, talking about the sort of the whaling back in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And uh, there was this one section where they were looking at blue whales, and they're these amazing creatures that are 90 feet long and 90 tons. And when you're up close to them, they just look massive. They're so, so big. But there was this one shot where they pulled uh, away, further and further away from these whales. And in the expanse of the ocean, these whales looked tiny because of the magnitude of the sea, right? And so part of what happens to us is that when we're standing up close to our economic struggles or to our job struggles or our relational struggles or whatever our anxiety is about, it seems massive and huge. But when we stand back and magnify the Lord, all of a sudden our troubles become small as they're compared to the greatness of our God. The Psalms tell us that God holds the whole universe in the palm of his hands, right? If that's true, then our troubles are not meaningless But in relation to God, they're nothing to the God who is mighty, to the God who is strong, to the God who cares for us, right? When we magnify the Lord, our lives and our problems become smaller. When we magnify God, not only does that happen, but we become braver. You know, why did Abraham leave his country to go to the promised land? That would be incredibly terrifying. The reason why he did that is because God became huge to him, right? Why did Noah build an ark? Because God became bigger to him than the ridicule of the people around him. How in the world did Moses go to Pharaoh and demand that he let his people go? Because God became bigger to him. How in the world did Deborah, a woman, a female judge, stand before Sisera, who had all these chariots? How in the world did she stand before him? Because God became bigger to her than all of those chariots and all of those forces. What gave the disciples the ability to die for the gospel? As God becomes bigger, we become braver, right? And part of what's awesome, too, is that when we magnify the Lord, other people are drawn to God as well, right? Mother Teresa, when people look at her, they go, man, something must have been operating within her uh, that allowed her to do all of those amazing things. People are drawn to God. Martin Luther King, right? We, f- we forget sometimes that he was a preacher, and we just think he was a social activist, But the reason that he was involved in racial reconciliation was precisely because his God was so big. Billy Graham, God was huge to him. Nelson Mandela was a believer. Again, what enabled him to do huge things? The fact that uh, that he trusted in God, that God was huge. When I was in high school, there was a man who discipled me who was um, uh, from Africa. His name was Sunday Joseph. And uh, he was a really interesting guy. I went on a mission trip with him one time. He was a pastor that had come to the United States. And uh, on this mission trip, I got to spend two weeks uh, with him. And he was a very interesting guy, very extroverted. And uh, I remember getting up the first morning, we were in Trinidad, and we went for a walk to go get breakfast somewhere. And uh, we sat down at this restaurant, and Sunday Joseph, in his very, you know, African way, just said, praise God for food, praise God for food. And then we would sort of walk back, and the sun was, you know, kind of coming up on the horizon, praise God for the sun. And he was just constantly really just sort of just being effervescent 
about magnifying the Lord. And I remember just being drawn not only to Sunday Joseph Otango because of that, but even being drawn to the Lord as he magnified the Lord, right? That's part of what happens here. The, one of the questions I think as we go through this is we have to say, what about Jesus? How does Jesus matter in this whole, um, this whole story, this whole song? Well, part of what we see in this is that Jesus also became a man in order to magnify his father. That's what John 17, 3, or John 17 tells us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you, right? Part of what Jesus is talking about there is put me up on the cross because what I came to do is to glorify you. That's what I'm here for. Jesus then went on to say, I glorified you on earth. In other words, over the past 33 years of my life, I've been glorifying you and glorifying you and glorifying you. He says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's what Jesus came to do is to glorify his father through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Now, this morning around um, the, uh, the DeSoto Theater, we have these tables with uh, bread and wine, or on this side of the room, we have bread and grape juice. And part of what this, uh, this meal that we call the Lord's Supper, um, some people call it communion, but what it represents is many, many different things. But ultimately, this meal exalts God because it exalts exactly what Jesus talked about a moment ago when he talked about glorifying his Father by going up on the cross. Because what this meal represents is that Jesus paid the price, the penalty for our sin. He was punished in our place by taking our sin upon him. And in exchange, he placed his righteousness upon us. And so when we trust in Jesus as our Savior by faith, we are given the righteousness of Christ. And so this meal, which symbolizes the death and the resurrection of Christ, when we take this meal, what we're doing is we're declaring to ourselves, and God is declaring to us, and we're declaring to one another that we're forgiven. Not because of our goodness, not because of our worth, but we're forgiven precisely because of the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus, on our behalf. And so what I would ask you to do this morning as you prepare to receive this bread and wine or bread and grape juice, that you would really take the time to think about what this meal says about God. And it would be my prayer that you would be able to join with Mary in exalting our God who cares for us, who offers us mercy, who is mighty, and that we would exalt our God who is our Savior. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be reminded of your grace and your mercy to us in this meal of the Lord's Supper. And Father, I pray that this meal today would be precisely for those people who have failed you. Father, I pray that this meal today would be precisely for those people um, who struggle with self-loathing. I pray that this meal would be precisely for those people who think that they've done it too many times or that it was too big or that they knew better and therefore there's no way that you f- could forgive them. I pray that this meal would be a reminder of the gospel to them, that this meal would be a reminder that your forgiveness is greater than their sin, that the death of Christ was more than enough to cover over not only all of their sins, past, present, and future, but that the blood of Jesus, your son, is more than enough to cover over all of the sins of all of those who will ever trust in him and all their sins, past, present, and future. And so, Father, I pray that, the, that what they would hear, that we would hear today in this meal of bread and wine symbolizing your son, 
is that you love us, that you care for us, and that we have received mercy because of your son, Jesus. Here now as I read the words of institution taken from 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.